I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell get hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low and he helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul. For the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the uh, courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of thee, O Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of the word. Let us pray for the preaching. O Lord, our God, what glorious and wonderful things are found in the word of God of a truth. And now as we come to hear the word preached, we pray that your spirit would be upon the minister who preaches, that he would uh, preach the word of God faithfully, discharging his duty truly as a servant of God, not the master, but the servant. And we pray it would be the master who would uh, preach through the servant, that the Holy Spirit would be powerfully present in the preaching of the word, that both the congregation, and the minister would know the power of God in the word of God. We pray that the minister would diminish, that Christ may increase, that the congregation would diminish, that Christ would increase as well, and that we would be filled with an awe for God. And so as we come to the preaching of the word, we pray of a truth. Speak, Lord, for thy servants heareth. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? How many of us have received the great gift of salvation, have received Jesus Christ, and have never asked the question, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Men and women who are truly gripped by the grace of God ask the question. They are seriously interested in it. In their own soul, they are, because they are profoundly grateful for all the gracious benefits, not just salvation, but every benefit that the Lord has given to them. They see themselves as beggars of mercy, and the Lord has filled their cup overflowing. And they ask for all this, what shall I render unto the Lord? You know, it is those, as you look at the Bible, but also if you look at the Christian church, it is those who are most keenly aware of the grace of God who serve the Lord so well, so well. We think of in Luke 7 recently, haven't we? We think of that sinful woman, right, who washed the feet of our Savior with her own tears. We considered her and The Lord Jesus, we remember, spoke of her in this way. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. See, in a way, you might even think, she comes to the Lord and she asks, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me, 
forgiving me the sinner who has committed such vile sins. And yet the Lord freely forgives me of all that. The question in the heart, what shall I render unto the Lord? What she has, she gives. She undoes her hair. She has tears. She will give them to the Lord. This is what moves a man or woman to serve the Lord when they understand rightly the grace of God. And in essence, that is the theme of the 116th Psalm, responding to God's bountiful grace. As we remember from prior sermons, as we consider our context, right, this psalm is right in the midst of the great Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. And as you have heard time and time again, these psalms celebrate the, the exodus, right? Freeing the church from her bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And for such a great mercy as that, the people were called to sing this psalm as they celebrated the Passover meal. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Freeing us as slaves in Egypt uh, all of his entirely of his grace, a stiff-necked people saved by the mercies of God. And as we've heard time and time again, we know that the Exodus points to the greater Exodus, of course, Christ procuring our salvation as the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, a greater Exodus that has liberated us from our bondage to sin and the pain of an eternity of death and hell. And it is in view of that deliverance that this psalm finds its meaning as a new song for the church after the cross. And so our theme by which we consider the 116th psalm is resolving to live for Christ out of thankfulness. Resolving to live for Christ out of thankfulness. And God willing, we will do so under two heads found on your outline. First is reasons and second is resolve. So our first heading, reasons. Uh, this psalm can be easily divided into two parts, which is why we have two headings. Verses 1 through 11 uh, is the first division, where the psalmist explains why he resolves to live for the Lord. Verses 12 through 19, the second division, where he gives then resolutions on, uh, on how he will live for the Lord in view of the grace of God. And so in our first heading, we're considering his meditations on why he resolves to live for the Lord. Uh, this is his own meditation. This is his own reflection. This is his meditation on what the Lord has done for him. Now, this is interesting as we've come through Psalm 113 uh, through Psalm 115, these Hallel Psalms, because what strikes us about the shift here in Psalm 116 is that it shifts from corporate to personal. It has been all about us as the people of God. He has saved a people unto himself. Uh, thus far, that has been the theme. But what strikes out against uh, what, what strikes us uh, most of all about the 116th Psalm, rather, is uh, the individual nature of the psalm. It is one of God's people reflecting on their salvation, showing us that salvation is not just corporate, it is individual. Uh, for instance, you are not going to be saved because you're part of this church. You are only saved or part of a denomination, right? You are only saved or part of a Christian family, boys and girls. You are saved because you personally know the Lord. You own the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. You have come to the Lord for mercy and you recognize mercy you have received. That is what we have to understand as the people of God. We are to have a personal faith in Christ. We cannot deceive ourselves into thinking, because I'm part of some corporate body, I am saved. We are each called to have a living faith in the living God. Own Him for yourself. And so, with that for some brief context, trusting you remember the context from the prior Hallel Psalms, this psalm begins with the prime reason for the psalmist resolved to live for Christ. The very first verse sets it in order. I love the Lord. I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplication. You know, the Christian can be virtually defined in this way as one who loves the triune God. That can essentially be a definition of the Christian. 
We love the Father, we love the Son, and we love the Holy Ghost. These three being one. After all, what did Christ say is the greatest commandment of all boys and girls? Is it not to love the Lord thy God? And out of love for him, we are to resolve to live for him, which is what the commandments teach us. And the psalmist also recognizes why he loves the Lord, right? There is here a because. He says he loves the Lord because so-and-so. We'll get to that in a minute. But he recognizes that he loves the Lord, not that he loved God first, but because God has loved him first. He knows the truth of 1 John 4.18. We love him because, why? He first loved us. I love the Lord because, and he gives the reasons why, these are an expression of God's love towards himself. And as this is a halal psalm, just consider the Exodus itself in that. Was it not Jehovah's love that was the reason for him to make covenant with his people and why he saved them? Consider Deuteronomy 7, 8. But because the Lord loved you, And because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That is why he saves his people. He loves them and he keeps covenant uh, because he does love them. And for you who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, was it not love that sent Christ into the world? And was it not his own love for his people that sent him here himself? Did he not say that he loved the world in this way? God did. That he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Was it not the great demonstration of God's love in Romans 5 verse 8 that moved Christ to lay down his life for us that while we were yet sinners... He loves first, and we love in response. Are we not, this is not reasonable for such a love like this, right? Are we not to love God out of hearts filled with thanks? Yes. And one of the ways to grow in love, because we are all, each of us, called to grow in love. This is a duty, because our love is not what it ought to be. It never is, right? We ought to love the Lord with every fiber of our being. And we don't. We reserve portions of our heart for ourselves. And so from the day of our conversion to the day in which God calls us to glory, we are called to grow in love for Him. And one of the ways that you will do this, child of God, is simple. It is to recognize and recount what He has done for you. It is to recognize and recount what he has done for you. Remember when Jesus freed the man possessed with a legion of demons in Luke 8.39. We didn't, we consider that not too long ago. Do you remember what he told him? Show how great things God hath done unto thee. We are constantly to remember what he has done for us. And that's what the psalmist does here in Psalm 116. He recounts the great and magnificent things the Lord had done for him out of his graciousness. Even in the face of great sorrows and distress and death itself imminent, God had saved him. And so in our first verse, the psalmist loves Jehovah because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. In the first two verses, he recounts how when he was in distress, the Lord heard him. He heard his voice and heard his supplications and he answered his prayers for deliverance. In the second verse, he says, the Lord had inclined his ear to him. Now, the psalmist begins in a place that very few of us do, which is a recognition that for God to even hear us is gracious. There is no need for him to open his ears to our cries. And yet, what the psalmist says is just the bare fact that he heard me is grace I do not deserve. Right? The meaning here is that the Lord has condescended, has stooped down to hear him. You remember that theme from the 113th Psalm that kicks off the Halal Psalms, that it is a condescending act of God to even consider us. We are so far beneath him. 
So the psalmist recognizes that not only the answer to prayer, but even the Lord hearing them is gracious. He should stop his ears toward us as sinners, but he does not if we are in Christ. Proverbs 15.8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is what? His delight. I've never really gotten over that, that verse, right? God delights to hear our prayers. Right? We, we talked about the love of complacency and how God can delight in his people. And what a thing it is to think that the love of complacency grows as we delight, as he delights to hear our prayers. Right? That God delights to stoop down to hear us. And what a thought that is. And so in our secret place, in our family worship, in our prayer meetings, in our corporate assembly, even now, God delights in our prayers. And isn't that strange, beloved, that our great benefactor, who gives good gifts to his children, who rescues us from all our distresses, is so benevolent, so benevolent, that he actually delights not just to rescue us, but he delights to even hear us and our prayers, that they are not a chore to him, that he delights to hear it. And yet, here's the convicting thought, to us, the beneficiary of his grace, prayer is a chore. And yet to him, the one who delights to hear it, he says, this is a delight. I want my children to come. It it, it delights me to hear them pray. So be thankful for the grace of prayer. And pray out of thankfulness, children of God. Prayers answered as well ought to drive us to more prayer. The psalmist recognizes the answer to his prayer. And he says, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. He says, answered prayer ought to fuel more prayer in our lives. For us who remember the mercies of God and so many answered prayers, at the very least the prayer answered of salvation. We ought to be more constant in prayer, ought we not? In verse 3, the psalmist recounts why he prayed, why he needed prayer. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. What the particular difficulties the psalmist faced, we're not sure. We can speculate, I suppose. However, whenever we recognize that the the particular difficulties are not in the text, we understand that is especially so that we may take it up ourselves and not feel like it is so narrowly defined for a particular situation. Whatever these difficulties were, beloved, though, he found himself at death's doorstep. The the sorrows of death compassed me as though they surrounded him. Uh, The imagery here is as of a vicious enemy surrounding his encampment. And he saw imminent death. And he felt the pain of hell, right? Uh, which is really in the Hebrew, the pains of the grave close upon him. And his soul was full of trouble and sorrow, as though he anticipated death at any moment. Sometimes in our society, I don't suppose we uh, have as much of a sense of this kind of thing as those in generations prior, where they sometimes felt imminent death surround them uh, due to calamities of different kinds. But perhaps you have sensed it, that death is near, and you don't know when the hammer is about to fall. And his soul was full of that kind of trouble and sorrow. And when you assemble the other verses that speak of his affliction, you get the picture of a man that was in such great distress. In verse 6, he says, I was brought low, and he helped me. Verse 8 says, Thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears and my feet from falling. The man found himself in tears. His feet were stumbling. Verse 10 says, I was greatly afflicted. He recounts that he was in a very low state. He weeped or he wept. His feet were stumbling. His afflictions were very great. And the strain on his soul hit its climax in verse 11. I said in my haste or panic, all men are liars. So you're getting a sense that this man was severely crushed and pressed down. And verse 11 is very key to understanding the state of the psalmist. 
this is really kind of the key to understanding how low he had gotten. Because here he doesn't justify what he had done. He said in his panic or haste, all men are liars. And so he doesn't have a theological truth here, actually. You might think of Paul, you know, your initial thought might be Paul, like in Romans 3, saying that none does good, right? That all are evil. Um, But here he says, he says this thing in haste. He is not making a theological point like that. And he saw that he sinned in saying all men are liars. Well, what was his sin then? He called those who spoke the precious promises of God liars. When those said things like this, right, you can feel the strain. You've probably felt it yourself. When he heard a man say something like, all things work for the good of them that what? Love God. He very well could have said, you liar. Does that look like what is happening right now to me? Look at how terrible things are. Sometimes, beloved, you know this, or you've ministered to those in this condition. Your sorrow will be so overwhelming that you are tempted to think that God's promises are platitudes and maybe even lies. People get to that kind of strait. Even those with a true faith get to that kind of condition. And you see it here in the psalmist, don't you? But he said, this was my sin. Those men who spoke the promises of God did not lie. But I was brought so low in such distress that I said it was the case. Because if you are in Christ, beloved, God will not let you fully deny him. At some point, he will convict you when you speak out against his word. After all, even though the psalmist said all men are liars, even though he had said this, at the same time, he was a man who cried out to God. Nevertheless, he might have had it very hard in his heart to believe the promises of God, yet he still came to God for help. And haven't we seen that very recently in Luke's gospel? As we thought on the man whose boy was demon-possessed, and Christ gives him a promise that if you would believe, all things are possible. And what did the man do? He came in his tears and said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And the psalmist, like us, is a man of that condition. Unbelief mixed in with faith. And he reinforces that though he had called men who spoke the promises of God a liar. In the previous verse, we see this man is a believer. In verse 10, he said, I believed, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. Right? Everything that came next in verse 11 was because of his affliction. Had pressed him. And so when we are dealing with those who are afflicted, believers who are afflicted, uh, we cannot excuse sinful thoughts that they have. However, we are called to understand them and why they might say it, or why you might say it as well. But we know that this is a man of faith in anguish, and he did believe the precious promises of God. And you can know that for a certain because the Apostle Paul cites verse 10 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I think the setting there is quite appropriate. If you remember that chapter, and you may turn there if you wish, but Paul wrote in verses 7 through 9 of that chapter before he cites our verse, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. You almost get the sense that, uh, that, that Paul may have even sung Psalm 116 or meditated on it before the Holy Ghost moved him to write chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, and, and we see here a man there, troubled, perplexed, persecuted, cast down, but not forsaken. And a few verses later in verse 13 of that chapter, he wrote, We having the same spirit of faith according as it is written, As it is written, so here comes the citation from Psalm 116, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. You see, he cites this as a man, right, who believed and speaks the precious promises of God, of the gospel. And then he goes on to write those precious words uh, 
that you probably have memorized, that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a greater, a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You see how all of this is wrapped up in the psalm book, isn't it? The psalmist here, a man of faith, who slips in his faith, hastily saying, all men are liars, yet is a man who believed, even though unbelief creeps in in a moment of weakness. And this theme of unbelief mixed with faith that we have considered of of late often permeates the psalm book for your encouragement. You know, the psalms don't have this false veneer of joy that so many Christians chase after. Like many man's compositions of praise, the psalms are honest. They deal with matters like unbelief openly, such that you can be a lamenting Christian and praise God. You can say, in a moment of weakness, I didn't believe the promises of God, and yet here I am praising God nevertheless. So may that be an encouragement to you to pick up a psalm in such a time. Well, as we consider the psalmist's sense of the imminent pains of death, where he began to panic as though drowning, we can resonate with that. Every believer can take this psalm up. For it is this very sense that drives you to the gospel. It's this sense that takes you to the gospel. right? When believers come to recognize their sinfulness has made them liable to the pains of death and hell, who is the enemy? We need to think of this. Who surrounded us with the pain of death? It was God himself. It was God himself. And you felt the gaping chasm of hell before you, that your sin required a great payment you could not pay. And in your distress, as perhaps the gospel was preached to you, you might have even cried out that the gospel was too hard to believe. Well, all my sins, can it truly be that they would be washed away? You might have had in your haste the sense of the psalmist here in verse 11. All men are liars, even the minister who's preaching. But you cried out to Jesus Christ, save, O Lord, and he delivered you just like that, assuring you that those who believe on me will never truly die. Those who come to me, he promised, I will in no wise cast out. And were you not thankful on the day that you believed the precious promise of the gospel? Have you forgotten it? Sometimes, beloved, We need to come back to psalms like this because we forget what it was like on the day that Christ saved us. And we cast ourselves for mercy upon his feet. And we remember with great gratitude, even as we sobbed over our sin and mourned that we had pierced Christ, we were greatly moved uh, with thankfulness that the Lord would save even the chief of sinners. You are to rekindle it. You are never to forget it. And you are to put away ingratitude and discontentment, which often chokes out the thanks that we are to have to God. It's very interesting. Providentially, we're confessing sins of the 10th commandment this day. It is often a lack of thankfulness to God that gives us a sense of ingratitude and discontentment. If we are not gripped with the mercies of Christ, of course we are going to chase after things of this world and be discontent. That's why it is idolatry. Be thankful for what you have in him. And so the psalmist praises God for his graciousness in verses 5 and 6. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low and he helped me. I have been brought low and I have been helped by the one who stooped down to me. The one who remembers the lowly and not the proud. The one we have recently praised in the 136th Psalm, right? Who remembered us in our low estate for his mercy endureth forever. And so the psalmist recognizes in verse 5 that Jehovah is gracious. Gracious. There is nothing in us that merits him listening to us. There is nothing in us that merits him saving us. Now, ours, Christian, is a God of pure grace. His benefits totally unmerited. His rescue of us utterly unearned. And that is his very nature. Right? Notice how it is framed. 
He says here, gracious is the Lord. He is a God who gives and gives of himself to us. And that should move us to call on him often. But also, and here's the conundrum, he is righteous. Gracious is the Lord and righteous or just. And that is the problem that we have to resolve, isn't it? He is just and we are sinners who deserve justice. We do not deserve his smile. We are like the psalmist, a sinner. Here is a, a, a sinner who says in his haste, all men are liars, and yet he has received the grace of God. How can these things be when he deserves the justice and wrath of God? Well, the psalmist says that not only is he gracious, not only is he righteous, but he is merciful. And what does mercy even mean unless it is in view of justice? How can we have the mercy of God who is just. Romans 3.26 says, because he is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. How can he give you mercy, child of God? It is because his sword of justice fell on Jesus Christ for you who believe. That in your place on that cross, it was God's sword that was awakened against his fellow And he was slain in your place such that he can be just and the justifier of them that have faith in Jesus Christ. This is the grace of God shown because of the love of God shown that he spared not his own son for you who believe so that he can be gracious, he can be righteous, and he can show you mercy and not violate who he is. Then, he says, the Lord preserveth the simple. There's a promise here to you, believer, not only of justification, but also perseverance to the very end. Uh, When he says simple here, he brings to mind what we heard last week, that we are to be as children, not in understanding, but in malice. Remember, we're to grow and be mature. But in malice, we are to be as children. That's the meaning of the word simple here, to be like the childlike believer. You know, the reason for this promise and why we need it is that believers are often, we think, outmaneuvered by the wicked, right? We are often ensnared and encircled by them and their wiles. We study righteousness. They study uh, as though they are studying the art of war, right? Uh, They study wickedness. And they study the way to get ahead in this world, and so on. But the psalmist recognizes that I can be like children in terms of malice because God defends the simple. And God preserves the simple. We are called to be as wise as serpents, but also as harmless as doves. And the reason that we are and emboldened in that is because God is our defender. You can be simple in the world's eyes. They can laugh at you over following the commandments of God, right? And think about how many men laughed as we prayed uh, for the man who defended the Lord's Day all the way to the Supreme Court. Think of how many laughed at this man. What a simpleton he is. And yet God defends the simple. And God preserves them. And he will defend the righteous. You are not to revile in turn, he said. You don't fight fire with fire. He will preserve you. You study and do righteously, even when it seems absurd. The victory and the vengeance are mine, saith the Lord. Now in an unsettled state then, in verses 7 and 8, the psalmist reminds his soul of the Lord's graciousness. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for, or for this reason, The Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. When you remember the grace of the gospel and all the other deliverances the Lord has delivered, what can you say to your soul but the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee? Do you believe sinfully that the Lord has been a miser to you? Or do you truly believe the Lord has dealt 
bountifully unto you. You need to believe that the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. All of God's people can say it, that the Lord hath dealt bountifully with me. For if you are in Christ, the Son of God was given to you. Right? What is that? God is given to you. What did uh, Jehovah tell Abraham his great reward was? It was God himself. Right? He has been given to you to deliver your soul from death, your eyes from tears. In fact, when you think of this deliverance, right? Has he not promised you, believer, that one day he will wipe away every tear from your eyes? Right? He has promised these things. And he has promised he will keep your feet from falling into perdition. He has dealt very bountifully with you. Such that if you have Christ only, you possess more than any man could dare to dream for or hope for. And what he gives on top of that, right? Even daily deliverances and sustenance, his mercies, we love to say are new every day. And so we see his bounty heaped upon us, overflowing, such that we are called to exhort our soul, return unto your rest. Do not fret. Do not be anxious. Isn't this the substance of Matthew's cha- uh, six, Matthew chapter 6? To not be anxious. You know, if only, beloved, our eyes would be fixed upon the bountiful grace of the Lord toward us, how much more rest would our souls have? How much more rest? Do you think Jesus lied when he said, Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul? Was he a liar in that? No. You have rest. You are to exhort your soul. Return to your rest. Look upon the bountiful grace of the Lord. Recount and recall not just the gospel, but all the ways he has delivered you thus far. What did Samuel say and recognize? Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. That ought to be the rallying cry for every believer. Hitherto hath the Lord helped me. Surely the Lord has dealt bountifully with thee. Don't leave today without admitting it to the Lord. So for all these deliverances, the psalmist said, I love the Lord. All of these are the becauses that come afterward, that the Lord had loved him first. And so he returns love to the Lord. And so the question is very simple today. Do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? And if he asked you why, why do you love the Lord? He asked Simon Peter, do you love me? This is a question that he asks all of you. Do you love him? And why do you love him? Can you recount how he has dealt bountifully unto you? You have to. This is your obligation to love the Lord. And to love him more. Admit the Lord's kindness to you particularly. Confess your sin of doubting it. Just as the psalmist did. Well time is going away very quickly. And so in view of these reasons for thankfulness. Let's go to our second heading which is resolve. Now the most notable feature of the psalm perhaps. Is the psalmist's expression of returning love to the Lord. He makes five resolutions to live for the Lord as a response to the grace he has received. The Apostle Paul, right, after first dealing with the guilt of man in the first three chapters of Romans, and then dealing up to chapter 11, to the grace of God that has appeared to us in Christ, he begins the 12th chapter of the book of Romans by showing us why a man or woman would live for God. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In other word, words, due to the mercies of God you have received in Christ, your reasonable service is to resolve to live for God as a living sacrifice, as a re- uh, response to the grace of God. This is how the Heidelberg Catechism, and for today I put the Catechism from uh, the Heidelberg Catechism question two, uh, which asks, how many things are necessary for thee to know that thou in this comfort may live and die happily? Three things, 
First, the greatness of my sin and misery. Second, how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. We have considered that in the psalm thus far. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. And that's the outline of the book of Romans, as the Heidelberg Catechism teaches. And so this is now we are coming to his thankfulness. And this is the heart of what is called evangelical obedience. Evangelical obedience, which is obedience to God that flows out of salvation as the fruit of salvation. The fountain of salvation is in the triune God, right? The Father in love sending the Son who comes down in love to procure salvation. Then Father and Son pouring out the Holy Spirit who applies salvation to us in love in our effectual calling. He giving us the faith to believe in the precious promises of the gospel. It is the love of God through and through that gives us every benefit. But as a response to the total salvation we have received, we resolve to live for God and obey. If you love me, keep my commandments, the Savior has said. And this, if you want succinctly to know the difference between legalism and evangelical obedience, it is this. We respond to the grace of God in thankfulness. And that's the distinction between legalism and evangelical obedience. Which is why the psalmist asks rhetorically in verse 12, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? In other words, should I not give my entire life to the Lord who has loved me so greatly? Yes, evangelical obedience. And so verse 12 is the key verse for the psalm and is truly its summation. And it is a question to ask daily, every morning, when we remind our soul to rest, saying, His mercies are new every morning and his compassions fail not. We ought to draw a straight line then to this question in verse 12. What shall I render this day unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? We want mercy. Then we ought to be glad to give obedience our whole life. But you also remind yourself you don't render service to Christ this day to gain benefits but you do it because he already gave them to you and your heart is overflowing with gratitude. And so the psalmist makes several resolutions to live for God and to consider each one will help us understand how we are to walk before God in view of grace. And on a deeper level, you will also find Christ here in every one of these resolutions for these are all resolutions that he made. And as they are righteous resolutions, you will recognize them in his own life that we might have his righteousness by faith. So that said, there are five resolutions and we will breeze over these and briefly consider them. The first resolution is in verse 2, to call on the name of the Lord as long as he lives. The mercies he has received, I've already said this, gives him the resolve. He actually resolves to seek out God forever. Does this not make sense, beloved? The Lord had heard him and delivered him. Is it not reasonable then to call on the name of the Lord in every distress? Whenever you have need of mercy, you are to go to the Lord first. You might think, well, that sounds like a no-brainer, Pastor. Is it? Is it really? Is he always the first place you go? Hardly, beloved, hardly. And I say that of myself too. Too many of us first seek help elsewhere. You must resolve in every difficulty to seek the Lord first. And these are the resolutions you must make with your own soul, that he would be the first port of call. What is said of the scoundrel? God is the final refuge for the scoundrel. But we say, if we are the righteous, that he is to be the first port of call. To call on the name of the Lord glorifies God, telling him by faith, he is the only one who can help us truly, even if he uses other means. And certainly, we remember our Lord Jesus Christ as a man of prayer in his own life, constantly calling on the Lord in the midst of every difficulty, the God-man, right? The God-man, calling on the name of the Lord in every uh, difficulty. Perhaps you remember this in that most solemn time of all in Gethsemane. He didn't barge into the cross. He fought first called on God in prayer in the garden. I'll more on that later. His second resolution is in verse 9. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. 
And a way to rephrase this would be, as long as I live, I purpose to walk before God. Meaning that he purposes that his life would be lived in holiness. As though I will walk every moment of the day as though the holy God of heaven is right before me. What a change that would make in your own walk. To think God is here before me. God sees what I am about to do. God knows what is in my heart. And I will walk whether I am in secret, in a dark room with only my computer on, or I'm just with my ungodly friends, or wherever it is I am, I will walk in holiness before God. That's his resolve. Let all others mock me for it, but I will walk with God. You must not behave as though the Lord does not see what you do. You know, at the sermon, at the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, we saw how Christ's eyes are depicted as a holy flame, signifying that he sees everything. He's omniscient, even penetrating that hardest substance, which is like lead, our own hearts. And yet, we remember perfect love casts out fear. We love the Lord, and we walk before him in holiness, not out of slavish fear, this psalm says, but out of filial reverence out of gratitude for our God. It ought to be our great delight to walk before the Lord in holiness, right? This is how Christ lived, walking before the Lord in the land of the living until that final breath when he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my, uh, my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. He walked before God in holiness in the land of the living. And his righteousness, we praise God, is ours by faith. The third resolution, verse 13. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Now, the cup of salvation referred to here certainly precedes the Lord's Supper, uh, though, of course, the Supper seems to be its fulfillment, as Paul calls the cup uh, in the Supper the cup of blessing in 1 Corinthians 10.16. And that's one reason that this psalm is often sung in the communion service, right? because we see here the fulfillment of the cup of salvation in the chalice. But the cup of salvation is actually broader than the Lord's Supper. Do we not sing in the 23rd Psalm and say, My cup runneth over. My cup runneth over. Uh, the gospel is a feast, as Isaiah shows us. And our salvation, were it in a cup, would be full and overflow. In other words, we have received an abundance of graciousness, a bounty the Lord has been bountiful towards us in this psalm. We have received, what did Isaiah 40 say? That we have received double for our sins. Don't misunderstand what that means. What that means is we have received more than enough to cover our sins. Right? The, the gospel where it filling a cup would overflow, such as the cup of salvation we take up. But we think of Christ as well. How is it that we have a cup of blessing? How is it we have a cup of salvation? Why can we drink out of it? Is it not because Christ drank the cup of God's wrath? When we think of this psalm, and we think of Christ singing it after that first Lord's Supper, that last Passover, are you not transported back to Gethsemane? Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. I said we'd return to Gethsemane. Here we are. You know, the terrors of this psalm really take on a new meaning when you think of the Savior. You think of the Savior in Gethsemane singing of the terrors of the grave, being encompassed by death in Luke twenty-two forty-four, Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In view of his agony and him singing this at the Lord's Supper, does not our Psalms third and fourth verses take on greater meaning in him? The sorrows of death compassed me and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Here is the Savior. Here is the Savior who had faced the sorrows of death and hell. Why? For himself? No. For you who believe. So that you can take the cup of salvation and never, ever take up the cup of God's wrath 
And do you not remember the words uh, that he gave us, the words of institution at the supper? This cup is the new testament in my blood. What does that signify, testament, right? We have a testator. We have his last will and testament in the cup. Has the Lord not been bountiful to us in Christ? That we receive all the blessings of the testator's death in him. Such agony and pain he endured, so God may be bountiful in grace to us to give us the cup of blessing because he drank the cup of God's wrath on those three hours when darkness filled the land. So what is the psalmist's resolve in view of the cup of salvation? It is to call upon the name of the Lord. And the Hebrew word here signifies not just prayer, but also signifies praise. Praise. To call on the name of the Lord is to praise him from this Hebrew word. And so we take the cup of salvation and praise the name of the Lord. How bountiful he has been to a sinner such as me. The fourth resolution is verse 17. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. And that's the bridge here between these two resolutions. Out of thanks for the Lord, we are called to offer the sacrifice of praise. And that is what calling upon the name of the Lord signifies here as well. Praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says, By him, that is Jesus, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Christ sacrificed himself for our sake. And we are called to show thanks for that by way of praise. Yet, we're often slow to praise him. We're often lethargic to do so. Some of us, we won't even be present when praise is sung. But we are constrained by God to praise him and praise him as the fruit of our lips. Uh, In other words, what are you doing? What am I doing? If we, at the very least, don't have this response to the grace of God, to praise him for what he has done for us. We often speak to our children, don't we? We'll talk about this maybe a little bit tonight in the other sermon. But how can you be so ungrateful to not do the simple things we ask you to do? We give you food, we take care of you, we love you, and you won't take out the trash. How can we be so full of ingratitude, right? And yet we are the same way. We're the same way. We won't find it in our heart to even praise God. Now the fifth and final resolution is repeated twice. In verses 14 and 18, I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Now, the psalmist must have made vows to the Lord, as we often do. He must have made vows for deliverance, as you think on the context, right? Deliver me, Lord, and I vow to do such and such for you. And that's one of the purposes for making vows. Uh, You can consider uh, the use of making vows when distressed. If you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 22, verse uh, uh, paragraph 6, and it's proof texts. We often make vows, Lord, if you will do that, if you'll deliver me in this way, I will constrain myself to do such and such for you. Very good, very right, very proper. Now, the problem for many of us, though, is after being delivered, we neglect to keep our vows. But he resolved twice to do so. And that shows you the importance of uh, constraining yourself to keep vows you make and not neglect to pay them. But as we think of Christ in the psalm, how blessed we are that the Son of God paid his vows to God. Right? He had made a vow eternally to the Father that he would purchase our salvation. And he kept that vow publicly, right? as the psalm says, in the presence of all his people. Before the people who mocked and cursed him and scourged him, before the disciples that ran from him, he paid his vow to God that he would save his people. And we praise God that Jesus Christ never reneged his vows. He paid his vow to drink the cup of God's wrath to the dregs for your sake, believer. And should that not then fuel our own obedience out of thankfulness to keep the vows we have made? I'm only saved because the Savior kept his vows. How can I not out of thanks? This is a psalm of thanksgiving. How can I not out of thanks for for things he has delivered to me that I've asked for in my vows? How can I not pay those? How can I not keep my vows, whether they be wedding vows or membership vows or whatever other vows you have made? 
How is it that we are so unthankful we can't do that? That's the question. That ought to be the great motivator to pay them even in the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of the O Jerusalem. And the Lord's Supper is often called a covenant renewal. And the psalm fits that framework because covenants are renewed and made in the church. Don't have time for that. We'll have to pick that up another time. So there are five resolutions the psalmist made to express his gratitude to God. Evangelical obedience. His life lived as a living sacrifice to God out of thankfulness. And in our remaining time, I want to consider just a few more verses to wrap up. There is this remarkable truth in verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. An entire sermon series wouldn't do this verse justice, beloved. But let me just say this. God promises that your death is precious in his eyes. Maybe think of it this way. Uh, If your death is precious in his eyes, beloved, how about your life? Your life is precious, dear saint. If you ever struggle, child of God, to think on whether your life is valuable, and it certainly is, you know it because your death is precious to him. And how much is your life precious to him? It's a great thing to know that your death is something the Lord deeply cares about. Deeply cares about whatever manner it is that the Lord will take you to himself. It will be done with care. It will be done with this purpose, that you will be with him forever. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You think of him speaking to the thief on the cross. This day will you be with me in paradise. Precious in Christ's eyes was the death of that sinner, that thief who turned to him. And on your deathbed, you are to recall this. So burn this text into your heart before the deathbed and before the affliction comes. The martyrs remember this text and they know that their death is precious. And of course, as we think of the Son of God, the most precious death of all was the death of the Son of God himself. His death in our place that we may live forever, that when we die, we are taken to the paradise of God to be with him. And so, in verse 16, the psalmist dedicates his life to the Lord. O Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed me, uh, loosed my bonds. He has loosed our bonds, our slavish bondage to sin and to Satan. And so the scripture says he has now made us slaves of Christ to dedicate our lives to him out of thankfulness. Why are we made slaves to Christ? We are made like those in the Exodus, right? Uh, in, In the law of Moses who would have their ears pierced because they want to be slaves to their master. They want to be slaves to their good master. And we are to dedicate whatever remains of our life to him out of thankfulness, which is the theme of this psalm. But also an encouragement in this verse for you godly mothers. Think of yourself here. What a thing it would be, mothers, that your sons and daughters would say, Lord, truly I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. What a thing it would be for them to say to the Lord, O God, my godly mother, she was truly a servant of the Lord, and I will follow after her as thy servant. Pray, mothers, that your children would say such a thing, seeing your example and your devotion to the Lord, So the call here in this psalm is for you to be such a woman for your children's sake. I didn't have such a mother in God's providence. And many of you didn't have such a mother. But many of you women have the chance, if you are a mother and will be a mother, to be such a mother. Be such a mother to your children. And of course, we find once again the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the more, the son of thine handmaid, the son of Mary, who herself served the Lord. And so, having considered the grace, great grace of the Lord, the psalmist finds it his joy to resolve to live for God, not out of bare duty, friends, but out of joy and thanksgiving, which is where our obedience flows. He praises God that he has the privilege of serving God Most High. And the psalm ends with an exhortation to the people as a whole to praise Jehovah. Praise ye the Lord, or as in the Hebrew, hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. What a thing it is to praise God to say, I offer my life a living sacrifice to God. And so may you, as you reflect on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost, resolve to live the rest of your days for him out of thankfulness and with great praise until the day when the Lord will say to you of a truth, precious in the sight of the Lord is your death. Amen. May we arrive.